Welcome back to The Pilgrim's Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm Adriana. And I'm Sophia. And we're here today to talk to you about ancient heresies and their modern reoccurrences. Sophie, this was your idea for a podcast. Do you want to share with us what intrigued you about this topic? Yeah, I've been interested in this ever since I took Cyril O'Regan's class at Notre Dame, actually, because in one of our lectures, he mentioned that the heresies that the church dealt with in the first centuries of her existence are still around and still prevalent. And in fact, most of the controversies that erupt are in some way things that the Christian church has seen in the past. So there really isn't anything new about the objections to faith or about the objections to the Nicene Creed. It's ultimately just recycled. And I was really provoked by this uh, this statement of his. But really, in the rest of my studies of theology, when we encountered these heresies, I saw that it was true, that there are things about views of Christianity that are not orthodox that really creep into our own consciousness and in society in general. And I think that it's actually a really beautiful way of approaching the Christian faith through the lens of these heresies, because what they reveal to us is how the church responds to our inability to understand God. So it comes from the Greek word for to choose. I'm not going to try to pronounce it in Greek, but it's a choice of a partial truth. You take a good thing, but you take it out of the whole. And when you remove it from the fullness of the truth, it leads you to a life that's just not conducive to human flourishing because it's a it's a partial view of reality. But what happens is the church responds like a mother. You know, she answers these heresies with a more beautiful and fuller articulation of who God is and how he loves us. Um, and so it's a really beautiful dynamic, I think, that echoes what happens in the life of each Christian, that each of us has moments of grappling with doubt or getting things wrong, um, of sinning, certainly, and making mistakes. And what does the church do but meet us in that place with that same maternal tenderness? So I actually, I really like this topic, and and I'm excited to share it with our listeners today. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, what you're saying, and that if we could emphasize that maternal tenderness as the response to heresy, as we've talked about before, that isn't always the most common image that comes to mind for heresies. People can consider the church really judgmental or corrective or excommunicating people, and that's really not the purpose of of expressing what is antithetical to the Christian tradition. It's to show us God's love for us and show us who we are before God so that we can better love ourselves and love God. Yeah, well put. I was reading Orthodoxy, Chesterton's Orthodoxy recently, and I'm always struck by the image that he uses of Orthodox Christian faith. It's a set of walls that the church puts up on the edges of this island. And on the other side of the wall is a cliff that drops off into the void. The church puts up these walls, these boundaries of what she considers to be orthodox faith, these articulations of who God is and who we are, in order to keep 
the children safe who are playing inside, right? So we have the full expanse of these green pastures to play and to explore, and we can do so without fear because we know that the church is keeping us within the confines of what we know to be true about God. And Chesterton says, if the walls aren't there, the children huddle in the middle in fear. And that's where we would be if we didn't have this authority guiding us and ensuring that we stay within the truth of Revelation. Yeah, I actually think about that image all the time with my toddler. I'm really afraid of heights. And when we're at places where there could be a danger of heights or at stairs, like I'm always thinking about, oh, thank God there's the rails so he doesn't fall off. Otherwise, I would never let him loosened from my arms. And I always come back to the Chesterton image and like, what a grace it is that we have these pathways given to us. Yeah, there's a way forward and we can walk along it. Yeah, absolutely. And it gets at the communal dimension of it too, right? That we can each explore a different part, um, but ultimately it's together as the church that we hold fast to the truth. And I think that gets at the role of of theologians, of questioning particular issues and exploring different topics, but all ultimately as the body of Christ, we are kept faithful to the fullness of revelation. So I was thinking for this episode today that we could look at four ancient heresies that the church has dealt with, provide an overview of what happened, but also acknowledge ways that they're still present, you know, whether it's in our own consciousness or in the culture around us ways that these partial views of God still have their roots in our understanding of him. Because as I mentioned before, I think that is a really fruitful place to turn to when you're looking to build your relationship with God and to purify it. So what are we going to start with here? Well, let's talk first about Gnosticism, only because it's one of the oldest and earliest heresies to really spring up in Mm -hmm. the church. And it interests me that it still reoccurs today when we see it at the very roots of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, an enduring temptation. So Gnosticism comes from the Greek right for knowledge? Yes. And that really indicates some of the Gnostic practice. And it's this idea that there's a secret knowledge of God. One of Gnosticism's appeals is that it's actually kind of hard to describe, Mm -hmm. but In its earliest roots, it's a really weird kind of mythical structure of a set of gods who are competing with one another, and the ultimate god is this god who's totally removed from all creation, from all humanity, and you can know nothing of this god. And then there's these sort of demigods, and the lowest demigod is Jesus, who's kind of a messenger between the god and humanity. And he comes to tell the human person that they're trapped in their bodies and that they have this spark of divinity in them, their soul, if you will, that needs to escape matter. So it sets up immediately a dualistic structure. And that's kind of the philosophical foundation of Gnosticism is dualism, which presents two opposing and positive forces of good and evil. Immediately, it's antithetical to the Christian understanding of evil as a privation of good, not having any Mm -hmm. positive force of its own. So Gnosticism seems to present Jesus as sort of a teacher, someone who's going to impart this secret knowledge to you so that you can be liberated from the prison of your body. So in that sense, it's kind of turns Christianity into a secret club. 
So another way it's antithetical to the gospel is that it's not something publicly proclaimed for the salvation of all, but it's a secret message for the elite, which is something that you need to seek out and be admitted to in order to escape your body and reach this pure spirituality that is what you're made for. So it fosters also division among people and mistrust of the proclamation of the gospel because you're always wondering, well, is this really the secret that's going to free me? Yes. And I think that secrecy, the aspect of secrecy shows some of its attraction throughout the centuries. Mm. Just that idea that there's more to know here. And if you're in the club, you'll know. I mean, we see that all the time, like come here into this closed room and I'll tell you and you'll know more than everyone else and you'll get the real answer. Yeah. That is very much present in Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it appeals to the brain in the way that we evolved on a number of levels. One is this in-group, out-group, I want to know the secret and be part of this. But also, as you were saying, the dualistic tendency, our brain loves to categorize things in terms of black and white, good and bad, to separate things into two distinct camps. And the truth is that the incarnation shatters that. We've fallen because of original sin, but we were created good. And it's precisely our fallen human nature that's redeemed. That's hard to wrap your mind around. And so there is sort of a an appealing simplicity about Gnosticism that I think has contributed to uh, how it's endured over time. Yeah, I totally agree that we want clear systems and we're attracted to them. And they make reality easier to bear at times because we don't have to participate in reality as much when we can mentally control it and put it into two camps like you're saying Mm -hmm. and i think while the gnostic myths have mostly subsided in popular culture that dualistic foundation present in gnosticism we still see everywhere there's a vein and bedrock within modern philosophy in general in the total turn to the subjective in a disregard for matter that has a real Gnostic root. And you and I were talking about this earlier, how beautiful it is that our church and our scriptures in ways have answered these heresies before they've even presented themselves or developed. And for me, thinking about Gnosticism, I'm brought back to Genesis 1, God's creation of the world and the human person. And at every single day, he affirms, and it was good. On the sixth day, it was very good. And that's a truth that is revealed to us, that matter is good and the human person is good. That's a philosophical foundation of Christianity that's been revealed to us by God. And the Gnostic project is beginning on an opposite footing, that matter is bad and we need to escape it. Mm Um, And I think that appeal to escape matter, escape ourselves, definitely represents itself in today's culture. There's definitely a tendency to want to escape reality. Yeah, absolutely. It's driven by a tendency to portray the physical embodied particular circumstances of my life as the obstacle to my fulfillment, right? And this is someplace where I think the charism of Father Giussani, the charism of communion and liberation, has something so powerful to offer contemporary culture. I mean, I think CL is the anti-Gnostic charism, mm-hmm. because what does Father Giussani teach us but 
the particularities of your circumstances are not the obstacle, but actually the path to encounter with God. You don't have to escape the details of your life, no matter how mundane, no matter how much you're suffering, no matter how complex your circumstances are. It's there that the mystery comes to reach you. Because of the incarnation, all of that reality is positive. And secondarily, CL is also anti-Gnostic because it's the most radically open charism I've ever encountered. Like, you don't even have to sign up. You don't even need to be Catholic to show up. This friendship is freely extended to anyone who's interested. And everyone from the consecrated members of the Memores Domini to the priests who lead the movement, the lay people, the children, everyone hears the same message. The gospel is one. And the truths that we get together to talk about and to verify in our experience are one. And it's the same thing that was proclaimed in the Acts of the Apostles, you know, on the day of Pentecost. So in this sense, it definitively refutes these aspects of Gnosticism, the the secrecy, uh, the mistrust of others and of reality, the desire to flee something that you see as fundamentally opposed to your fulfillment because you're made for something that lies beyond the horizon. Um, no, like Father Caron, the leader of Ciel right now, loves to say, it's now and it's in the flesh, right? If Christ is who he says he is, the encounter with him takes place now and it takes place in the flesh. It's not something that we have to look for outside of the reality that's given to us. Yeah, that's really beautiful. What Father Caron says, I was thinking as you were talking too in CL, there's no fear of beginning in the experience mm. where a Gnostic tendency would only see evil there. You need to escape what is around you and escape what's making itself present to you. NCL and the Christian tradition is the exact opposite. The incarnation shows us God's love for creation and his desire for its redemption to be swept up into God mm -hmm. rather than something that we need to escape from and discard. Mm-hmm. Well said. On that note, we could probably shift gears to talk about a couple of the heresies that arise specifically around Christology. So what is the nature of the incarnation? This is something that is easy to get wrong because it's really hard to understand. I mean, it's the central mystery of our faith. And we've got a couple examples here that we can talk about in turn. The first is Arianism. Arianism is the first major theological conflict after Christianity was legalized by Emperor Constantine. So we're talking about the 4th and 5th centuries after Christ. And kind of like Gnosticism, it is a bit hard to define, but mostly because the texts of Arianism were destroyed. But we do have St. Athanasius' writings about Arianism. So he was the theologian who wrote the text that refuted this as a heresy. And through St. Athanasius' work, we get a sense that Arians denied the divine nature of Jesus. So they claimed that God was not a trinity. There was only one person to God, and that was God the Father. And the Son was a creation of the Father, so not begotten by the Father eternally, but created from nothing, just like the rest of creation, just like us. So the implication is Jesus is just human. Now, the Orthodox response is essentially that this places our salvation at stake because if Jesus isn't God, he can't save us, right? Mm -hmm. So through Emperor Constantine, there was the first ecumenical council convened at Nicaea 
in 325. And so this is where we get the Nicene Creed that we say at Mass every week. And this definitively refutes Arianism. So you can think of the phrases that we use in the Nicene Creed that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Each of these phrases is a way of getting at the mystery of who Christ is. Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. Christ is the second person of the Trinity. So he's not a demigod and he's not just some kind of extraordinary human person, but he is both human and divine. He has these two natures in one person. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that Arius, as you've mentioned, is alive in the third and fourth centuries. And at that time, Christianity is just being developed. People don't really even fully know, and this hasn't been articulated, there is no Nicene Creed. And Arius, too, is trying to make sense of the Gospels that have been given to him. And I think we also see in the same tendency we see in Gnosticism, this oversimplification of the Gospels in order to make sense of them. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so difficult to hold together the hypostatic union, fully God and fully man, and to really surrender ourselves to the mystery Mm -hmm. that's present in that and that that will always be inexhaustible. Not mystery in the sense that we can know nothing of it, but mystery in the sense that the knowledge is inexhaustible. I think Arius, you know, he was a priest in Alexandria, had good intentions and was just trying to simplify the Gospels. But in that, he really eliminates Jesus from the story and Mm -hmm. makes Jesus inconsequential on an existential level, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. If Jesus isn't God, well, we don't really have to listen to him. He could just be a great moral teacher. In that, I think I see a lot of the modern appeal that a lot of people still, I hear all the time, kind of just compare Jesus to another Muhammad or a Plato or just a great philosopher and a great thinker and a great teacher and And we're safe with that. We can take it or leave it. What would you say to that kind of modern um, phenomenon? I definitely see the appeal because they're extremely provocative and challenging things in the gospel. It demands, you know, sacrifice. And as you were talking about, it requires a kind of surrender. And if you relegate the divinity of Christ to the sidelines and view him as just this great moral teacher, you can kind of sidestep some of the obligations and some of the sacrifice. You know, if it's a human person dying on that cross, that's that's different from it being God. But at the same time, I think that it's eminently anti-scriptural. I mean, even from the very opening of the gospels, you get John the Baptist saying, there's one who will come after me and I'm not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. So evidently there's something qualitatively different about Christ. It doesn't make sense if this man's a great moral teacher, that John the Baptist, who was a great moral teacher, wouldn't even be worthy to stoop down and perform the work of a slave at his feet. He must be God. But there is something, as I was saying before, there is something scandalizing about that. Um, And I'm reminded about what Romano Guardini says in The Lord about Mary and the faith of Mary, that Even though she was the mother of God, she bore Christ in her womb, gave birth to him, raised him, nursed him, Christ remained ultimately a mystery to her. And you see this in moments of the gospel, whether it's the wedding at Cana, 
um, or when Christ is told that Mary's at the door and he says, who is my mother, my brothers? It's whoever does the will of my father in heaven. Or even the moment from the cross where he tells John, the beloved disciple, that Mary is now his mother. I can only guess at what must have been happening in Mary's heart this sense of distance from her son where she didn't understand. She had yet to receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, you know? So she had faith, but faith in a mystery, faith in something Mm -hmm. that she couldn't plumb the depths of. So ultimately, I think that Arianism is a rejection of this, of this fact of Jesus Christ as God, who is mystery. And Mary shows us the way out of it, shows us the fact that we can have faith even without plumbing the depths of the mystery and being able to digest and process it, that we can have faith in something that we do not see. Yeah, and we see this in every heresy, the tendency to pride. And two, with Mary, shows us the path of humility and willingness to self-surrender before Jesus. And that's really difficult. It's much easier to swallow Jesus's message if he's a moral teacher, because as you're saying, we we can pick and choose what we accept and don't accept. But if Jesus is God, we don't have that option. We have to follow everything we're given, and we have to surrender our own objections to him, as Mary does. And that's much more difficult, and that's a daily practice in our own lives. It's not just looking mm-hmm. through scripture and finding a reading that's really difficult and saying, I, I don't know if I agree with this or not, but I'll accept it because Jesus is God. It's in our every single daily moment and encounter with another person and all of the choices we make. Is Jesus God right now? Or am I God and he's a, he's a good teacher for me to follow? Mm-hmm. And to your point about daily life, um, if he is God, this is something we can verify in our daily experience. It's not something we just assent to in an abstract way and then hope that we can possibly live in accord with it. It's something that if it's true, we can test it and discover it again in our daily experience. Um, I think without that, I'd be lost. Yeah, you mentioned St. Athanasius as the chief defender against Arianism. And I really love that quote. So I was wondering if we could unpack it together. God became man, so man might become God. Mm. That gets to the heart of why he came. Because God had no need to come and save us. Metaphysically, he didn't even need to create us in the first place, let alone redeem us from our sin, from our choice to reject him. Why did he do it? Because his love overflowed in a desire to bring us back to himself. And when Christ came, precisely because he wasn't a great moral teacher alone, but God himself, he is the way back to the Father. He doesn't just teach us the way back to the Father. He is the way back to the Father. Through him, we can be made into the fullness of the image and likeness of God, conformed to his person because he's both human and divine, and so be welcomed into eternal unity with the Father. Yeah, like we said in talking about Gnosticism, the human person is created good. We're created in the image and likeness of God. But sin so damages the human person that we're no longer able to be in communion with God in the way that he intended when he created us. And the incarnation is a redeeming of the human person back up into communion with God. 
that quote for me really expresses the deification God desires or that man becoming like God that Jesus establishes definitively for the human person through the incarnation and through the Paschal mystery. Yeah. Another beautiful thing about that quote is it gets at the fact that there is a person with a human nature as well as a divine nature at the right hand of God. Mm -hmm. And this gets into the third heresy that we wanted to talk about, which is monophysitism, which rejects precisely that, the human nature of God. So just like Arianism, it collapses the two natures of Christ. But this heresy specifically believed that he was no longer really human. When the incarnation happened, the divine nature of Christ merged with his human nature and sort of dissolved it. Monophysis means one nature. And this emerged a little bit later than Arianism, after the Council of Nicaea. But from the start, it was strongly condemned. And at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, it was definitively denounced as a heresy, precisely because what we were talking about before, that what's at stake is our salvation. This potential for us to reach God, this deification that you talk about, Christ has to be a true man for that to be possible. Yeah, so this is really kind of the other side of the coin of Arianism. Where do you see monophysitism reoccurring in the present age? Well, monophysitism is still present in some Eastern churches, but I would say that in our Western consciousness, I think I see it in the tendency to relegate your faith to just certain moments of spirituality rather than the concrete details of your life and in your relationships and your embodied experience of the sacraments and of the church. Because if Jesus was only divine, then to make contact with the life of God means I have to elevate my mind and spirit to the transcendent in order to find him. Yeah, and I think it's really difficult for us to love everything that's human about ourselves and to mm -hmm. accept that God does and that God partook in them fully. Um, I think human weakness, crying, suffering, failure, that Jesus and that God accepted that and embraced that means that I too have to in order to become more like God. And that's really painful. And it's much easier to, like you're saying, hold to this transcendent God and disregard these really painful human experiences that I might not want to engage with. And I might not want them to be my pathway to becoming more like God or to encountering God. Absolutely. Yeah, that reminds me of a passage from one of my favorite poets, Charles Piggy. Do you mind if I read it? Oh, yeah. So in my opinion, this is in my hot take, <laughs> no one better than Peggy captures in poetry the event of the incarnation, the shock that you're talking about of the eternal breaking into the temporal and taking on our frail and fragile and messy human flesh. So there's this brief passage from the Portal of the Mystery of Hope, which is one of his long epic works that I think really pinpoints what's at stake in this. He says, Jesus Christ did not come to tell us tales. He didn't make this voyage of descending to the earth to come recount anecdotes for us. His incarnation, which is really the assumption of the flesh, his taking on of flesh and of the carnal, 
his taking on of man, and his being placed on the cross, and his being placed in the tomb, gave us living words to nourish. It is to us, the weak, that it was given. It depends on us, weak and carnal, to bring to life and to nourish, and to keep alive in time, these words pronounced alive in time. To keep alive the words of life, to nourish with our blood, with our flesh, with our heart, the words which without us would collapse fleshless. Wow, that's a beautiful poem. I really love that line, it depends on us, weak and carnal, to bring to life and to nourish. Just that aspect of our cooperation with Christ that's needed and our cooperation with with our whole selves mm-hmm. in order to become like God, in order to, to be in communion with God. It demands our cooperation. That actually really makes me think of our last heresy we're going to talk about today, Pelagianism. Oh, yeah. So Pelagianism is named for Pelagius, a theologian in the mid-4th century, early 5th century. He's a contemporary of Augustine, and Augustine's his chief interlocutor, if you will, in discussing grace. And the poem made me think of Pelagius and that idea of cooperation, because Pelagius's heresy has to do with his understanding of grace. He doesn't really believe in congenital sin or inherited sin, so he has problems from the beginning with original sin. He thinks that the human person just develops a custom of sinning, and that if we didn't develop this habit, then we could entirely avoid sin in our lives. He says this is because, and this is a quote of his, the natural integrity which presides in the depths of the soul. So on one level, I do want to note that he does have a very optimistic anthropology that you also find in the Christian tradition, like we talked about in Gnosticism. Matter is not evil. Matter is good. God created you good. But Pelagius' error is that he misunderstands the power of sin and how it damages the human person, both body and soul. Mm -hmm. And for me, what is really striking in Pelagius is I think he really misunderstands the social nature of sin. I mean, his refusal to accept congenital sin suggests that we can sin in a vacuum. Because he does accept sin. He thinks it's just a a habit that we fall into. Mm. But that it wouldn't affect another person or future persons in terms of generating families. That's always been an obvious reality to me, I suppose. The social nature of sin. Yeah, and really like that we can't escape the sins of our father and mother Mm -hmm. and grandfather and our society and world. And that we're born into this brokenness. It does surprise me that Pelagius denied this because it's so counter to my own experience with sin. Yeah. And I think if I look at it from the perspective of my studies, I mean, I study abuse and neglect and their impact on the developing brain. I mean, I see how the sins of the parents bear consequences on the child that impairs in turn the child's own freedom to choose the good later in life. Even on the level of our biology, there's something about broken relationships that is structural that's becomes this web of harm and of loss of good it doesn't make sense to speak of the sin of one individual as if it didn't affect the ability of everyone around you also to choose the good yeah i do think there's something attractive in that idea with pelagius i suppose because you don't have to deal with other people as much 
And I think of my one of my favorite books, Kristen Lovren's Daughter, that was really inspiring to me when I read it in my early 20s. Love that. You've read it? Yeah. Yeah. And so for those that aren't familiar, I do suggest reading it. But it's a story, of, it won't sound immediately attractive, a 14th century Norwegian girl <laughs> growing up, and it's three volumes. But it's really the development of her conscience. And she makes all these decisions. So much of it centers around her impetuous relationship with her future husband, Erland. I won't spoil too much, but so much of her mindset in the beginning is so self-focused that she's unable to see how her actions impact those around her, her father, her mother. Mm -hmm. And then when she has children with Erland, she's immediately confronted with the reality of her own sin being expressed in her children and has to come to terms with that. And that was very provocative for me in my early 20s because I think I too liked to act as if what I was doing then wouldn't impact me later and certainly wouldn't impact other people. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the dangers of Pelagianism is the rejection of the gratuitousness of our redemption. Um, I'm reminded of a time my junior year of high school, the first couple of years, I strayed from my faith and from the church. And some of that was, you know, not living the moral life of the church and not praying. But in particular, it was really seeking my own project of self-fulfillment and my own standards of perfection as if by my own effort, I could eradicate every kind of wrongdoing from my life or everything that I saw as inadequate, whether it was in my social life or my academic life or my appearance or whatever it was, but try to build a future for myself, build a life for myself. Ultimately, though, what it led to was this deep sense of despair. I remember really clearly the moment that it hit me, this intuition that if I'm pursuing a project of self-creation and self-fulfillment, the horizon of my life is empty and there is no reason to go on. I never reached the point of any kind of you know suicidal tendencies, but I did have this piercingly clear intuition that without the grace of God, my life means nothing. It's a conviction that has remained with me because we are created good. But as you were saying, when we are left to our own instinctive reactions and our own devices, we do hurt ourselves and others. And this is really where I see that Pelagius was wrong. Left to my own devices, I'm selfish and I'm desperately attached to my own comfort and my own projects and my own plans. But what does the church teach us to do in response to this, right? to trust the grace of God, not to try harder and fix yourself better, but to trust that there's an answer that comes to you and to look at him instead of yourself and your own failings. Yeah, wow. Thanks for sharing all of that. I do think with Pelagius, there's really this inherent danger of pridefulness and that you're speaking of in yourself too, and that we all have within us, that we don't need to depend on God and that we can fix ourselves that we can decide our own destinies totally. And the danger with Pelagianism is that we don't understand our own human weakness. That is very real and always present to us, like exactly what you're saying. When left to my own devices, I can't save myself. I'm actually very selfish. I experience a real truth to that as well, Um, that we need God's grace and his reordering and healing of our hearts 
to reorient us towards the good. And this is the miracle, right? The miracle is that it happens. I'm reminded of this this diagram that Father Giussani uses in the religious sense. And if you Google Luigi Giussani, it's going to be one of the first images that comes up in Google Images. Uh, He'll be standing in front of a blackboard. And essentially what it is, is this horizontal arrow across the blackboard. And this represents the trajectory of human history. And then all of these arrows moving up from that horizontal arrow towards the vertex at the top. Picture a triangle. And then there's only one arrow that comes from the top and goes down. So essentially what this is, is you've got the horizontal trajectory of human history. And then all of these attempts to reach the divine, these ways of searching for God, trying to seize hold of our salvation. And only one in the incarnation, there's one arrow of God coming to us. So what it is to be human is to accept the transcendent that's coming to you, to accept the grace that comes into your life. It's not to strive to elevate yourself to the divine, but it's to welcome the message of the one who took on our flesh and saved us and so has opened the way for us to go to the Father. Yeah, that reminds me of Augustine's chief defense against Pelagius. Ultimately, Augustine points to scripture. He really argues from just one line, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is enough for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And Augustine says, any person who doesn't recognize her weakness is not perfected. Mm. Wow. It's through our human weakness that we receive God's grace and that we can cooperate, that we recognize our need for God and our need for salvation and our need for that vertical line that you're saying. Yeah, to let him live in us and transform us. Yeah. I think Pelagianism is very popular in modern culture, both outside of Christianity and unfortunately within the church too. Christian Smith has actually talked a lot about this on moralistic therapeutic deism Mm -hmm. and how prevalent this understanding of God as like this distant figure who just kind of oversees our lives and isn't personal or intimate, more of kind of a divine butler or one that steps in in crises moment, but isn't necessary for us in our day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. And I really see a strain of Pelagianism in that because it's that same idea that I don't need God in my day-to-day. I don't need God in the morning or on the regular day. I need him after a terrible event has happened. Mm -hmm. Or I need to know that eventually I'm going to go to heaven, but that doesn't really impact what I'm going to have for supper or even like what I'm going to study at school Mm -hmm. and what my potential job might be. And the Christian tradition shows us just so much more intimacy than that. The incarnation discloses that God takes on human flesh. Like he wants to be part of every single moment of our lives and he too wants to participate in every single moment of our lives and that's just totally at odds with this idea of kind of a distant overseer and it really denies the intimacy that christ wants to share with us and also i think i i see a lot outside of christianity this idea that we've progressed beyond the need for god I see this all the time in the tech world, like technology has made it so the human person no longer needs God. And I think there's an echo of Feuerbach for those who are interested in philosophy, who said religion is the opium of the masses, that we wouldn't need faith if we were advanced enough 
And again, there's just that vein of pridefulness and unwillingness to recognize our human weakness that Pelagius too was culpable of. I think all of these modern reoccurrences show the logical consequence of that idea that we don't need God's grace in order to avoid sin and to achieve communion with God. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a great that's a great place to end. To go back to how we started the episode, I'd just like to mention that all of these tendencies that I know I identify in myself as well as in the culture around me, all of them are opportunities for grace. Um, These moments when I give into a partial understanding of God or a partial understanding of myself are opportunities to be renewed in the encounter with him and with the fullness of his truth. So I would invite this coming week our listeners to pray with the passage of the prodigal son, um, meditate on the mercy of God and his paternal gaze on us, that as soon as we recognize that we've turned away from him and We look up again and ask for his mercy through the church. He immediately extends it and welcomes us back and celebrates our return. Yeah, and I recommend a film called The Painted Veil. It used to be on Netflix. Have you seen it, Sophia? No, I haven't. It's really beautiful. And I think it has a really beautiful understanding of grace. It's about a husband and wife and there's infidelity And just the reality that she can't achieve forgiveness on herself. It has to be given. And he too has to come to that recognition and they're healing together. And I think it begins with a recognition of their weaknesses in order for healing to take place. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it's a really beautiful film. Before we go, I did also have another recommendation. I mentioned at the start of today's episode that I had the privilege of taking classes with the incredible theology faculty at Notre Dame, and some of them now host a monthly podcast called Minding Scripture, which I love listening to and learning from. This is their pitch. What does a reasonable and faithful reading of scripture look like? This question animates Minding Scripture, an interfaith podcast of the World Religions World Church Program at Notre Dame with lively academic discussions on the Bible and the Quran. So I highly recommend it. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes along with our other resources from today's episode. And be sure to check it out and let us know what you think. Well, I think that's all we have today, but definitely feel free to email us any questions or suggestions. Yeah, let us know if there's a heresy that we missed. (laughs) (laughs) There are many that we did not talk about, but we look forward to talking with you again soon. Yeah, and always you can find us on our Instagram as well, but join us here next week for another episode of The Pilgrim Soul. 